Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters, a.k.a. The Ant Hill. We have a really cool show today. Uh, I'm going to be bringing on, just in a moment, one of our uh, one of our coolest guests. We've had him a bunch of times. I'm sure we'll have him a bunch more. Frank Sharp, Jr. of Fortress Defense Consultants. We're going to talk about all kinds of stuff today. Lessons from what we're seeing go on and around the world. London riots, things going on in North Africa and throughout the Middle East. Uh, things that are going on right here at home. Uh, and how to uh, to be better prepared to deal with tough situations uh, that involve life and death choices. Because that's what Fortress, Self Def- or Fortress Defense Consultants is all about. Before I do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Harvest Eating with the uh, illustrious Chef Keith Snow. You know, I talk about all this cool stuff that we can grow that you don't generally see on the shelves of your grocery store. You know, Orach and Lamb's Quarters and Swiss chard and these exotic fruits and stuff. All this cool stuff you can plant that's actually better suited for sustainable agriculture than a lot of the monocrop stuff that's in the store. And then, hey, the peppers, the tomatoes, the onions, all that stuff's good too. But once you have all this stuff and stuff you maybe have never used before, what do you do with it? Well, you go to Chef Keith's website, harvesteating.com, and he teaches you to cook seasonally and locally. So whether it's from the farmer's market, your local CSA, or what you're growing in your backyard, Chef Keith has ways you can transform that food into fantastic meals that your family will love. If you're going to grow it and buy it and support it, you might as well eat it, and you might as well really enjoy it when you do so. That's what Chef Keith will help you do at HarvestEating.com. Next up today, SilverAndGoldShop.com, the wonderful Mary Beth Maidmont. And you guys call her wonderful, not me. Why? Because she just takes such good care of the audience. I've actually never had, and I don't just mean with the survival podcast, I mean in any business relationship where I've had someone I've endorsed uh, based on sponsorship or just a referral or anything like that, I've never had anyone who I get as much positive feedback on as Mary Beth and SilverAndGoldShop.com. Because she really cares and goes the extra mile to make sure every order is filled on time and exactly the way it's supposed to be. Uh, if there's any kind of hiccup with your order, she'll get in touch with you immediately to fix it. And I've even heard her do things like this. And I don't know if this always happens. I think it's a matter of when the, the move is significant. I've heard people email me and say, I placed my order in the morning. She filled it in the afternoon. It was an off day for silver and it went down a little bit. She adjusted my order down and, and, and gave me a partial refund so that I paid less for my order. I have never ever, and I mean ever, heard of anybody that does that. I don't know, again, that she does it all the time. The fact that she ever does it, and I guess it's when there's significant moves sometimes she does that, or if she doesn't fill the orders till later, whatever. Uh, but, wow, I mean, you just don't hear about that in the metals industry. She also has some of the coolest silver rounds you'll ever see. You know what? I know it's September 1st today, and it's like the first day of a new month, and it's still hot out, and Labor Day, and the official end of summer, kids are going back to school, and it seems like forever, especially if you're a little kid, for Halloween, Thanksgiving, and Christmas. Christmas, but guess what? You adults, you know it's going to go, bam. What does that have to do with silver and gold? You're going to be seeing nieces and nephews, and you've got kiddos, and you've got grandkids, and, and godchildren, and all that stuff. And all of these holidays are times when people give away stuff, and they usually give kids, you know, iPods or other plastic pieces of the crap from China. And not that I, I'm not a China basher or anything. I'm just saying, how much toys do our kids need? When I was a kid, you had like a little toy box and everything you owned fit in it. Today, these kids have like, you know, they have more toys than you see in the average preschool in some kids' houses. They don't need more toys. They need a lesson in lasting value. Why not this year, when you have these events, put a silver round in those kids' hands and explain what it is and how its value will grow and how as they grow, the value of the silver will grow with them. It's a really impactful lesson. And the first time I did it, I thought, will they really appreciate it? When I handed my niece a Lakota silver round, was the first one I ever gave her, 
she bounced across the room. I don't can't guarantee you a bouncing child, but I can guarantee you a lifelong lesson. So add it to your portfolio and add it to the value of the kiddos in your life. It's a low-cost thing. Gold's so expensive now, but silver, you're still looking in the 30s per an ounce of silver. Uh, a lot of plastic pieces of crap are more than 30 bucks that we give our kids all the time. There'll be no value to them. A year from now, they'll be tossing them away. They'll probably keep those coins for the rest of their life, or they'll be able to depend on them if hard times ever come. That's a real gift. Next up, remember, connect with me, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. Check out the forum. Check out the gear shop. And consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you'll get exclusive content available only to members. Um, and uh, I want to remind you guys that we have a contest going on to win a free Rock River Arms AR-15 upper in 5.56mm. It is only the upper. It is valued at $900. That means you need to supply your own lower. Most of you out there probably own AR-15s and have lowers that you can put it on. If you don't, you can go get one. Here's the good news. The upper is not the firearm. The lower is. That means anywhere in the United States, we can ship the upper to you. And uh, what you do with it after that is subject to your local laws and things like that. But anybody anywhere can win this. All you have to do is fill out a form and uh, you might win. So get by the website today and fill out that form. I'll probably do a post about it before I leave for the holiday. Uh, on that, there's an announcement here. Before I bring our guests on, Labor Day weekend is coming. I will not be doing any show Monday, and I am taking Friday off. I'm going down to Texas to take care of some business and see some family. So I'm taking a long weekend. I hope you take one, too. If you do want a show Friday or over the weekend, we are on episode 737 today. So there's a lot of back episodes to go back and pull one from. And with that, I think we've got the housekeeping wrapped up. Let's go ahead and bring our guests on. All right, folks, as I said during the introduction segment, we are fortunate to have back with us once again uh, Frank Sharp, Jr., who is also a sponsor, Fortress Defense Consultants, uh, to talk to us about all these crazy things that are going on in the world from a self-defense standpoint. Uh, Frank runs an awesome school up there in Illinois, again, Fortress Defense Consultants, where he teaches you uh, how to use all those guns that are in your home, uh, how to defend your, your home should you need to, or defend yourself or your person or others. He also teaches you uh, very important medical training. Uh, if you're going to walk around with something capable of taking life, uh, I think, and I think Frank agrees, you have a responsibility to be able to preserve life as well. Hey, Frank, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Hey, Jack. Hi from uh, the People's Republic of Illinois. How you doing? The People's Republic. You got your Floyd card or whatever they call that thing? Yeah, I do. I, I live about a mile off the Indiana border, and sometimes I just sit up high where I can see freedom across the horizon. <laughs> Well, hey, man, one of the big reasons I wanted to go ahead and get you back on so quickly since your last appearance is I'm getting a lot of questions about all this turmoil in the world and, you know, is it a lesson for America? And I, I think it is. And uh, what I'd kind of like to lead off with today is a little bit about the uh, the London riots and, and what people are dealing with over there. I mean, I don't know if you caught this, but, like, in this one part of England, the number one selling item on Amazon during all this crap going on was people were ordering a baseball bat. Yeah, that's a particular yeah. model. Um, what do we have to learn from London here? Uh, well, first we have to learn to not let yourself be disarmed. That would be the, the first lesson I would take away from that. But the other is the uh, fragility of what we would consider Western civilization. Um, when I'm looking at the rioters who are texting each other on their iPhones about their downtrodden, you know, society that they have no hope in and no opportunity uh i really have a problem with that considering uh you know tell that to a somali tell that to someone who lives in the you know bad part of new delhi that you know you don't have any opportunities so you're looking at really spoiled brat behavior is what i'm seeing with that now whether or not those per people who are perpetrating those riots would actually turning or turn into murderers overnight, I'm not sure. But I would say that mob mentality makes people do a lot of things they wouldn't normally do one-on-one. -on -one. So when we're looking at the fragile situation that a lot of our societies are seeing themselves in, you know, the European, American, North American model, uh, I am getting a little worried about it. I really am. Uh, each generation that passes seems to have less of a work ethic, less of a ability to understand property rights, and more of a instant gratification kind of thing. And, you know, I'm probably sugarcoating all that. I'm sure your listeners are, are going, oh, no, the kids these days, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, it, it's true. And it, it's it's so fragile that you look at what happened in, in London. It was actually sparked over a non-event. 
and the behavior that that under came with that you know is also uh, equally is apparent in their police forces, which were afraid to respond and do what they needed to do because of the political correctness that they live in. So I guess the lesson here is that, you know, for the people who are prepared and the people who are truly worried or not worried but concerned with their own safety and take it seriously, you have to realize you're on your own. And it doesn't matter where you live in the world, you're on your own. You're the person running point in your life, and your own security is your responsibility. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that we have a tendency right now, I mean, I want to talk to you about some of the other stuff we're seeing going on, like what happened in Egypt, uh, what's currently ongoing in Libya. But I think a lot of people, the reason London is such a wake-up call is because when you hear Libya or you hear Egypt, you think, my God, those guys are always doing, you know, throwing. Oh, yeah, third-world country. They're always at each other's yeah. throats. Yeah, you know. But London kind of brings it home because London and New York are not that different of a place. Um there has been a pretty heavy, uh, let's say, uh, influence of uh, some of the crime families out of Russia uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union that's, that's diversely affected uh, uh, London and made some parts of London dangerous for a long time. But, I mean, come on, we have plenty of, plenty of that type of thing going on with gangs and, and, and modern-day mafia in the United States. And it's, it's just basically – and I mean, one of the things that kind of shocked me was – the way this mob was running around saying we're we're attacking the rich people, the rich people, and, and they really weren't. They were going after mom and the, the middle class and the small business owners. Yeah, absolutely, mom and pop. And what what was really a tragedy? I don't remember where I heard this, but it really put it in perspective. You know, this is a these are these are uh, businesses and, and streets and towns and buildings that survived World War II and the Nazi bombardment, mm-hmm. and now they're Three, four, five generations, generation old businesses. Yeah, and they're being destroyed by their own citizenry now because they feel like they, they deserve an iPad or, or what have you. My other concern that comes out of here, though, is, and I don't know how you feel about this, but I'm, I, I, the second I heard it, before they even talked about it, I'm like, man, they're going to use this as an excuse. They were talking about how these, these people were using text messages to coordinate their mob attacks, mm-hmm. and I'm like, they're going to use this as an excuse to put more censorship and control on the wireless networks. Absolutely, uh, and then people like us that, of course, affects adversely as well. Oh, sure. Uh, you know, there's a there's a mass movement towards you know government surveillance and all that type of thing. And even when you look at London, the amount I, I the last time I read, and it had to be five or ten years ago, there was already what three hundred and fifty thousand surveillance cameras around London, and it's probably up in the millions by now. And did that stop any of this? No, in fact, you know what? I, I never thought of this, but that's why we have such great coverage of everything that happened, isn't it? Because there's frigging cameras everywhere. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, they're a complete surveillance society. It didn't stop anybody from doing anything. And, you know, again, if you, for, you know, just from the defensive situation of, of, you know, your basic homeowner in the United States, if you want to put surveillance cameras up around your house, feel free. That's a good idea. But what that gives you is a record of something that's already happened. You know, it doesn't stop a crime from happening in real time. Another side of this kind of what we were chatting about offline before we got started today was that this stuff actually has happened in the United States before. And one you brought up was Hurricane Andrew in South Florida. I remember I was in Panama in the Army during that period of time. Uh, but I remember a lot of stories about a lot of uh, people just having to defend what they had left on their own. Absolutely. We saw we got a lot of images on the news. It was a, it was a little better covered than uh, Katrina was and that sort of thing. But we had images of you know people sitting in lawn chairs next to that pile of rubble that used to be their house uh, with their shotguns, and you know lots of signs up "looters will be shot" that type of thing. Um, that you know the residents in a lot of Florida neighborhoods in, in that period in time were just not putting up with it, and they were you know forced to use those shotguns on occasion there during that too a lot of that actually wasn't reported very heavily but uh self defense in emergency situations uh happens a lot more than is ever reported because the police have their hands full you know there's a lot of things that they just don't make reports out on and people you know just kind of go well that just happened and we got to move on because we got more important things to take care of so you know we don't get a lot of good statistics on it yeah, and I mean, L.A. was another example of that, and I, I think it was like most people didn't know what to do, and finally, you know, basically, I think it was mostly the Korean immigrants that said, okay, and they took their SKSs and they went up on the roof and said, well, not you. Oh, yeah, during the King riots. Definitely. Yeah. That, that was that was huge. Um, you know, on on that note, there's two things I would, I would probably point out to your listeners. One, one is that uh, the King riots, we learned there that when – 
I, I guess a, a way we could describe this is, is on, in any given small community, your police force probably has the ability to respond to two real emergencies at once. If you had two banks being robbed at the same time, they could probably deal with that. If you added a third into that, they're overwhelmed and they're, they've reached the end of their resources. So when we get into a king riot situation, it's very common for the police, the, whether state, county, local, to, you know, in a lack of a better term, circle the wagons and go into survival mode. They're going to try to take care of themselves and try to maintain their own order within their organization. And they're just overwhelmed. They can't respond to you. And we saw that in the King riots. We had police officers pinned down there for three days. They were driving around in B cars trying to stop each other going, do you have any more ammunition? I mean, they were out of ammo. They were out of food. They were out of water. They were in the same boat that all the citizenry were at that point. They had no reinforcements. They had no supplies coming in. Their communications got cut off. It was a mess. And it takes very little for that to happen to any of us in any situation, and that's going to include your local police. So if you're relying on them to save you next time the hurricane comes through, you know, and again, these things are temporary situations. You know, they last for a few days or a week or maybe even a month, but eventually we do see some sort of order restored. But in the meantime, you have to take care of yourself. And death does not come in degrees, and it comes swiftly in less than one second once the process of causing it is initiated many times. And you bring up a great point there. It's something I really never considered about L.A. If you wanted to say to me, what are some of the largest, best supplied, with the most money and resources uh, law enforcement organizations in the world, I would say L.A. County and New York City are probably the two uh, best supplied. And they were pushed to the edge in moments, not not the edge. They were pushed over. Over the edge, they, right? They, yeah. They, they could not deal with it. They they changed so many procedures and policies after the King riots and a lot of things that I, I won't say out over the air. But their entire approach to how they even leave in the beat car now and what supplies they take with them has completely changed because of the King riots. I, I guess my point though was that if it can happen to L.A., then oh, sure. what is a small township with you know a population of twenty six thousand? If uh, two or three thousand people there go berserk, and they've got Barney and Andy and you know two or three other cops, and you know the one cop goes and put bullets in his gun because it gets heavy or whatever. I mean, a place like that, if you actually go over the edge there, um, it, it's far, it can be far more difficult to be responded to. And, and that ties into the last thing we talked about with terror attacks and that sort of thing. Um, I I guarantee you, there's somebody out there thinking right now, what's go, what's it going to take to overwhelm a small area? What's it going to take to go up to some you know, little bourbon, Wisconsin, or something like that, and completely annihilate an entire town or their population by overwhelming their police force, it's going to take very little. Uh, and that's another reason that we've been such large advocates of small police departments and anyone who is able to legally carry a gun to do so. You know, be ready for this. And that, that brings up another point here with these emergency situations, like even Hurricane Irene that just came through. Uh, there was a rumor going around that the North Carolina governor had suspended carry permits, but that actually ended up being wrong but a lot of times and we saw this during the flooding in iowa a number of years back and and katrina when the event happens that is not the time to try to get your carry permit because that office is closed i guarantee you and so i would really advise your listeners out there if you're someone who doesn't want to carry a gun every day or you don't even own a gun go get your permit now if your state issues a permit and it's, it's easy enough to get go get it so that you have it when the emergency happens, because that's not the time to go get that, to, to fill out that paperwork and wait your three months for the permit to show up. <laughs> yeah, you know, I actually, I, I've always said that I think people should get training and carry, but I've never really advised people, even if you're not going to carry, get your permit anyway, but you bring up a really compelling reason to do just that. More uh, so than that, if you look at, like, the state of Indiana, if you have your carry permit, that bypasses the, the waiting periods and all that sort of thing. You can cash and carry a handgun if you have a carry permit. So, you know, the, the emergency happens. If you've got your permit and you feel the need, you need to go get a gun today or you need to outfit, you know, your, your wife or another member of the family or something like that, you can go buy one then. You don't have to wait 24 hours or 48 or whatever's going on. Yeah, down here in the south, I guess I don't I don't think about that in advising my listeners as much as I should. You know, living in Texas and Arkansas, if you want a gun, you you, you go get a gun. I mean, it's just right. you just do it, right? And, right? and it's hard for me to to realize at times that there's parts of the country where 
well, I'd like a gun, please. Well, it'll be 48 hours and you can come back and get it. I, well, if you live somewhere like Massachusetts, I, I'm not actually totally up on their laws, but as I understand it, I, I think you're only allowed one pistol a month or something, and they've, you know, their gun permit takes forever to get. You have to actually get a pistol permit to purchase. Wow. Um, you know, do all that now. Now is the yep. time to do that because they will cut that off at the first sign of emergency. And, you know, we were talking off, off air about, you know, the economic situation, the food situation in the world. Um, it's all really fragile. Now, something could happen tomorrow, something could happen in a year, maybe it'll be another three years or something, but um, I, you know, the more days that go by and the more I'm reading and looking at things, we are definitely in a very uh, tumultuous time with, with all these things, and I, I would be ready for it. You know, you're, you're making me think of some stuff that we I didn't even have a plan to talk about, but, but really bears... Uh, bringing up here, did you talk about somebody just putting together a group and overrunning a small town as a terrorist act? And then I think of the shootings in Norway and what one shooter did, and it makes Absolutely. me think: what would what would ten do? What would oh, sure. twenty trained sure. shooters be able to pull off before they were shut down? And I don't mean looters and rioters and stuff like. L.A., and I think this is a big thing people need to understand. Just I'm talking about what you, Just think of what they could do to the power grid. Oh, just shooting Transformers, right? I mean, Absolutely. that Stephen Harris said, like, his fear of, of attacks like that would be, the guy just sits out there with a sniper rifle and shoots the, 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 uh, the Transformer and then just waits for a truck. And when the truck with the lineman comes to fix it, we just shoot him. And, right. and you literally suppress the power, and just one guy could have that responsibility in some of these smaller grids and keep the power down while the other people... Now, he was just talking about a lone gunman type thing, but to me, when I think military style, I think that would be a great way to keep resources contained, communications contained, while I initiated an attack with the rest of my group. And if these people are going out, and if it's a moving body, we shoot it, that's way different than what we're technically... Uh, prepared for most of these large-scale events. Usually that scenario is, you know, the Dylan Cleborn and, and his friend and, and, you know, two people or one kid. But if that was ever done in a coordinated attack, you, you, you could have literally thousands of people killed in a coordinated yeah, attack. We're, not, we're not ready for it. We're not yeah. thinking about it. And on another level with that, um, even shutting down the power grid or, you know, closing highways, that type of thing, uh, for the listeners who, who aren't even that interested in guns or, or for whatever reason that's not going to be a part of their life, Imagine trying to call 911 to get an ambulance in during that time. You know, shouldn't you know CPR? Shouldn't you know some basic first aid? Shouldn't you have a few days at least food in the house because you may not be able to go out while these things are going on? Uh, all of it kind of ties together in just a basic way of taking care of yourself. And that's what your show is all about. So, you know, for your listeners, yeah, let's, let's get on that and make sure we're well-rounded on all these things. Yeah, and you know... <sighs> I, is, is, is you're talking here, and I'm thinking about these kind of these, these worst case scenarios. I think about the simple things that just happened too. Like we just had the earthquake on the East Coast, which really wasn't that big a deal. Uh, it didn't really damage things that. Some places got some damage at all. Not, not I mean, as bad as many of us had hoped. Yeah, yeah. You know, we didn't we didn't have a White House collapse or anything. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but you know, or the Congress. Yeah. <laughs> As long as Ron Paul was on vacation. Um, but anyway, uh, <laughs> I shouldn't be that way. Exactly. Really, I don't wish that on anybody. That's just some, some, some twisted humor there because you get fed up with those ass we're just We're just kidding for yeah, the federal yeah. officers listening. Yeah. But what got me is like the news was on this about how it's been 10 years since 9-11 and they still haven't solved the cell phone issue because all the cell phones were shut down because everybody called 911 at the same time to say, hey, there was an earthquake. Um now, to me, they're not going to solve that problem. I understand way too much about cellular networks to tell you you can't build a network where everybody can make a call at the same time. It's cost. Well, not only that, you can't build a network where every call can be answered. Correct. You know, it's impossible. People are staffing 911. But, 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 but I guess my point there is that we're seeing the weakness of society. If there's an earthquake, just for anybody out there that's thinking about calling 911 because there was an earthquake, if you don't see somebody trapped under a car or a building dying, if you're not hurt, if your friends are not hurt, don't call 911 just to tell them there was an earthquake. They know. And, and it, it's right up there with the you know, numbskulls calling 911 because McDonald's was out of nuggets or whatever, and that just shows me the weakness of society, that, that you would even bother, hey, there was an earthquake. No shit, right? I mean, I don't mean to be that blunt, but really. But, you know, what do you expect 911 to do about it? You know, that's, that's, that's how, you know, if I was answering the call, I'd be and. 
well, you know, what, 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 we'll send a car right over. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, what do you, it's not what, a complaint department. We can't stop the earth from shaking. Now, again, if somebody's hurt, that's what it's for. But right. I think that in these, these crisis situations, a lot of the resources are tied up by people that don't need them. And that's another reason we have to prepare to be without. And, and we also have a, a, a liability factor worked into a lot of these agencies and especially EMTs and that sort of thing where you're going to have uh, people sending ambulances out for things that they don't need to send them out for, but they're liable to do so because of all the lawsuits that have happened before. So it takes very, very little time for all that stuff to get used up and those resources just aren't there anymore and the system's overwhelmed. Yeah, I mean, I remember one in the ice storm that happened about two years ago, there was a very overweight guy that was having a heart attack, and they called 911, and the, they could not get to where he was. And it was basically like a 200-yard walk, and they told him to walk. Well, he couldn't. He was a fat guy having a heart attack in the middle of an ice storm. He wasn't going to walk, but apparently, I guess, even his, his family couldn't drag him across the ice. Even a fat guy, you can drag across the ice pretty good. But anyway, they basically said, we're staying here until you come. And they said, we're as close as we can get. You have to come to us at this point. We'll help you as we can. But basically, you've got to get out of the house and come towards us. And they had like a standoff, like, we can't come in and you won't come out. And the guy died. Yeah. I, uh, I'm reminded there of... Uh you know, our, our basic 911 lecture to most of our students, but uh, many of the suburbs and different towns, when you call 911, you're going to be inundated with a bunch of questions that really make no sense to you. And if you've ever heard people on 911 calls, they're hysterical. I mean, all of us, our voice goes up three octaves, we're, you know, because there's an emergency going on. And so, we, like, if you call LA right now, they're 911, one of the first questions they're going to ask you is, is anyone underwater? And, you, you know, your father's dying of a heart attack or something, and you're just going to be, what are you talking about? But that's because they've had lawsuits. You know, somebody was drowning, and they didn't send out the dive team, so now that has to be part of the 911, you know. Screening. Screening through there. And, you know, that kind of stuff's going to drive you nuts. And our whole society has turned into this cover-your-ass kind of protection thing that, you know, it, it's not conducive to getting things done. It's, you know, eventually it's going to gridlock on its own because of that stuff. You know, and I, I mean, as I listen to this, I think more and more about the importance of community um, and people actually being prepared in advance to kind of band together in these situations because I don't care if you're well-armed and well-trained. If you're by yourself and there's a mob of 2,000 people, you're out. Yeah, how, how much ammo can you carry? You know, and I mean, sometimes you can turn a mob with one well-placed shot, but a lot of times you can't. Once, like, you, you know, you're talking about this, the mob mentality. There's certain things that happens, like, I don't know, people lose all sense of reality once someone else is doing something. We we had a running joke we used to do to people. This sounds unrelated, but it actually is very related. Um, when I was a kid in Pennsylvania and we'd go fishing on the first day of trout season, you couldn't cast your line till 8 o'clock, right? So at 8 o'clock, everybody throws in. Well, somebody would always throw in five minutes early, and every once in a while there'd be a, a fish warden sitting there waiting. You know, it looked like a fisherman like everybody else, and all the lines that went in, he'd just line them up and start writing them tickets for fishing early. Uh, so what we would always do is we'd grab like a pebble and make like you were casting a chunk of pebble in and see how many people could throw their lines in. And if, if nobody got busted, then you'd go ahead and throw in too. Well, but that's how it is. Like as soon as one person picks up a rock and hits a window with it, oh, it's now become acceptable to the people exactly. surrounding you, and therefore you, you, they, this animalistic nature comes out in people, especially if they have loose morals to begin with. Well, the, the mob is about absolution. That's what that is. Everybody else is doing it, therefore it's okay. And if you think about it, that, that applies to everything. That's applied to societies and politics throughout history. I mean, the, the Colosseum in Rome, you know, feeding people to lions shouldn't be something that's socially acceptable. But yet, people went and did that with their families as entertainment. And it's because society accepted it. And the mob is just a microcosm of a, of a temporary society. That that's what's going on. Yeah, yeah. See, I've never so, heard me say that if before. You have, if you have a mob that says it's okay to you know nail somebody to this tree right now, that's what they're going to do. Uh, you know, that's why you know the, the vigilanteism kind of thing is always a, a, a bad word and, and frowned upon because the mob, yeah, it can it can act outside of you know the proper morals of the law. Well, and then the surrounding person actually wants to stand up and put a stop to it realizes. 
I'm at a point where maybe I'm not going to help, but I'm not going to get in the way, and I'm just going to kind of find my way to the edge and get out of here. Because you know if you stick up and say stop, uh, and when you're surrounded by a 1,000 people, it's you, it's not going to go well for you. So Absolutely. the suppression has to come somewhere outside coordinated. It can't come. The mob can't police itself. It's impossible. Anybody that would try it is going to get eaten by the mob. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, I mean, what, what is your advice for people? As we, I mean, this is some pretty scary stuff. So, I mean, obviously your, your, your advice is, you know, the be first, armed. The advice is learn to recognize it. Uh, you know, you have to you have to allow your mind to open up and see what what reality is for reality. And when you see people's blood pressure starting to go up and they're starting to behave in a way that you know, always always question. You know, it's that typical kind of you know question authority bumper sticker that we all see. Um, and, and authority comes in all kinds of different different forms. Uh, the mob leader, yeah, question them, question what you're doing and why they're doing it, and then question why you're there and if there's somewhere else you can go. Uh, you know, I. I constantly say, and this is just another way of, of expressing this, um, I want to be a terrible witness. When the police walk up to me and say, you know, what happened when this happened, I'm going to say, I don't know, I wasn't there. That's what I want to say. <laughs> you know, I want to be the guy who was gone. <laughs> I, I didn't see it. I don't know who, who hit who. I don't know who shot who. I don't know who set what building on fire because I was six miles away at somewhere else. Yeah. Why were you six miles away? Because I thought somebody was going to shoot somebody, and I thought somebody was going to set a building on fire, so I got the hell out of there. I thought it was the safe and prudent thing to do to move my family from this place. You know, I mean, whatever whatever you have to say, but it's, uh, you know, see it coming before it happens. And also understand what society you live in and how the people are and, and just kind of make a case study of it. Now, we were talking off air. Uh, you know, you can take the most innocent, uh, wonderful person who's a great neighbor, and all you have to do is ask yourself one question. What would you do to feed your own family and then apply it to that person? You know, uh, what, what would you do to feed your family when, when it was an emergency? Your, your children are starving. What would you actually do? And ask yourself that question and, then, and do that introspection on yourself. And once you answer that question for yourself, say, are any of the people around me any different? Yeah, I think food is something that can cause a lot of this stuff, and I think it's underrated because, well, there's so many fat people in America, you go, how could we possibly be out of food? But one of my listeners sent me a picture of a Walmart in Connecticut. All right, this is not exactly, you know, the super danger zone for Hurricane Irene. Even in the worst, in the worst case scenario that didn't happen, it's still, you know, a limit, or Rhode Island, uh, actually. And, uh, the, the shelf is just, Bear. There's like one box of cereal, and at the end of the, it, it's kind of sad, really. There's this girl at the end of the aisle that's looking in the shelf, and you can read on her face, "I don't understand." Right? She just doesn't even get like, like where did it all go? And uh, I mean, so food disappears quickly in an emergency. But I sent you an article that we were chatting about that I featured this week on the show called "The Cause of Food Riots and uh, the Cause of Riots and the Price of Food." And this study that's been done, there's a very clear correlation. All of this stuff that seems unrelated in Libya and Tunisia and Egypt and all, it, it, it just all centers straight on the point where the, the cost of acquiring food hits high points. And, and you can see it very clearly on that graph. And I think the article puts it this way. It's like a dry forest. It's not the food itself, maybe, but the food shortage itself sets society into a condition where anything can set it off. Like you said, London was a non-event, but yet it's right in the middle of this matrix. Sure, sure. And so many things affect food prices also, and, and things that we all, you know, your listeners do should be keeping their eyes on. You know, you go with food, you go with fuel costs, uh, fertilizer costs, you have to look at weather patterns and harvest reports, and also just the economy in general, because as people are losing their jobs, they can afford less food. And is that going to cause a glut in food, or is that going to cause, you know, prices to go up or down? Or, you know, there's so many factors in that, and, you know, we all become amateur economists with these sort of things. But food is definitely probably the key factor. I've, I've always said that throughout history, if you watch wars and how armies go over borders, a lot of times it's about feeding their, their own populace. Um, not always, but it, it generally it becomes a factor. We're going to go take what they have. Yeah, I mean, Napoleon lost more troops heading back from Russia than he did in any battle because they starved to death on the way back in the cold. And it's, uh, you know, the old army marches on his stomach. But on the food thing, I mean, to me, you know, your cost analysis is dead on because it's not just is the food expensive, it's do I have the money. 
my grandfather used to tell me a story when he was a little, you know a kid, actually a teenager, and he'd say that you know he'd go into town, and you could buy a whole bushel basket full of apples for a nickel, and he would just shake a nickel. Yeah, he'd just shake his head and go, "Damn, that's cheap," and walk home with nothing. So it didn't matter that it was cheap if you didn't have the nickel; they were expensive for you. So it's a relative thing. So. Um, and then if the food's scarce, like in, in a hurricane situation, where you know how much was two gallons of milk and four loaves of bread really worth to somebody who thought they were going to go a week without any food? Probably quite a bit. That's where the price gouging comes in. And the government can say we're not going to allow it. But let's face it, when you need it and someone else has it, you know, right. you're willing to pay whatever the cost is because you're going to feed your family. Exactly. Or, or you're going to get to a point where you're going to take it. You know, I'm not saying you or me, but it's, yeah. you know, there, there's going to be people who are just going to take it. Well, I have to say that, to be honest, if, like, my family's starving, the biggest thing that's going to prevent me from taking it is making sure I have it in the first place so I don't have to. And that's the whole thing. A moral person, you know, is if we go back to the, uh, you know, grasshopper and the, you know, ant story and all that kind of stuff where you're going to store it up. You're going to you're going to make sure you can provide for your family and you're going to do all that stuff because that's a responsible thing to do and we don't want to turn into criminals. That's, you know, why we go to work and why we do everything because we sure. have to pay and we don't want to have to go steal money to do it. You know, that's a, that's an interesting thing. I can't believe I haven't come up with it in 730-odd episodes that prepping is a moral choice. It's actually a positive moral choice that prevents you from violating your own morals uh, by doing today what you know you should do, so tomorrow you won't have to do what you don't want to do. That's very well, profound. I mean, right? Well, we make those moral choices every day. I mean, there's people who have, you know, three children, and they say, boy, I'd really like to go jump out of an airplane, but do I need to take that risk because I might leave my children fatherless? Um, you know, and there's other people who make the choice, and is that a moral decision in their life that can be judged? No, but, um, you know, we, we, we make these decisions with other things in mind all the time. And that's why we go to work, and it's why we pay our bills, and it's why we eat right and exercise and do all those kind of things. I mean, yeah, we could sit on the couch all day and eat Cheetos, but we'll probably expire before our children are full-grown, and how responsible is that? You know, what are your thoughts on how you can maybe reach out into your own neighborhood and community and find – there's probably – it's probably not going to be the case for, unless you live in, like, uh, Liberty Hill, Texas or something – um, or that one place in Georgia, a little town in Georgia, you're going to be able to get everybody on board with this. But generally, if you have a neighborhood with, let's say, 100 families, there's probably a dozen people in there at least that are like you. And that dozen family unit uh, can really do a lot to protect that neighborhood in a complete breakdown. Do you have any ideas for how people can reach out and find people like that in, in that community and put together some kind of a plan that if, you know, if, if all hell breaks loose, if the shit hits the fan, maybe not all across the world, but right here in our backyard, at least this neighborhood will be somewhat organized toward a defense. Well, forming new relationships does take time. I'm going to be the first one to admit that. And I've had some of my own personal contact in my own neighborhood through really amazingly strange little happenstances. Uh, I had a neighbor whose lawnmower got stuck in the front ditch, and I was driving by and saw it. And so I stopped and helped him push his lawnmower out and got to talking to him, and I got to know the guy, and we're really good friends now. Uh, you know, it's things like that. You just actually have to reach out and get active and, and involved. And uh, subtle things you can do when you're shopping in the grocery store, look, look and see what people are putting in their carts. Look if there are people that look like they're buying things cheap and, and storing it up in bulk and that sort of stuff. Maybe you can strike up a conversation with them there. The other is organize some sort of, uh, not necessarily preppers meeting, but say you like want to hire a really great firearms instruction company to come in and do a gun safety lesson for kids, and you you know put that together and put up flyers at the grocery store stuff, and then when you know the instructors are sitting there teaching the kids about gun safety, you can talk to the parents because you've obviously got a tying bond right there of firearm safety, you know that kind of thing. That's very creative. It makes me think a lot of Marjorie's stuff about more running, you know, agricultural-related workshops. And if you get people together on a related topic that's not got a negative stigma to it, like how could you object to teaching children gun safety? I mean, exactly. sure somebody does, but, you know, come on. I mean, you're really, out, you're really stretching it when you object to that. But it's going to naturally attract people that have the, the same mentality you do, and I think that's what – I mean, relationships to me are based on common interests and culture. Those two sure. things are what create relationships. So, at, I mean, at that point, hey, you want to go to the range. And if the guy says yes, well, you know you've got a gun owner and a shooter. 
Yeah, and I'm I'm all for living what we call the stealth existence, so I don't put bumper stickers all over my cars. But, you know, when you're walking through, you know, the parking lot and you see the NRA sticker on a car or, you know, your neighbor's house, he's got the NRA sticker on his on his truck or something like that, yeah, you know, you've got a conversation starter right there. Or the Oath Keeper sticker. And that's a, that, yeah, that, I, would, that would be a good neighbor to have. I, I, uh, never, I never fail to acknowledge somebody if I see them displaying anything from Oath Keepers because I know I'm really in sync with that person at that point. You know, even the Tea Party stickers, all that kind of stuff. You know, you see them in traffic, and, you know, they're, they're out there. There's, there's people out there who have the same mindset as you, and you can find it. What are some basic skills you think people should learn beyond just basic how a firearm operates? You, gun skills or in general? Uh, in b- Both. Uh, <laughs> for self-defense particularly, though, for, for this type of... For, for self-defense, uh, it, it's always going to depend on the person, and I may have mentioned this before, but, you know, like my 83-year-old grandmother, I'm probably not going to get her into martial arts anytime soon. Um, she's got a revolver next to her bed, and that's that's pretty much her plan A, B, and C. And good for her. You know, at least she's, she's thinking that way. Uh, but I would recommend the first thing everybody do is go out for a walk. Just start getting in a little better shape. Um, I, just in the past year, have really, you know, attacked my own physical fitness a little harder than I used to, and it's made a world of difference. You know, I mean, just being able to get outside and do things, it, it helps uh, with my gardening and with all the basic prep work, just being able to have your breath and not get tired all the time. And that's going to make a huge difference in the middle of a fight, uh, whether that fight is over your purse in the parking lot or it's, you know, during a Katrina situation and you got to fight off a mop. Uh, on top of that, um, learning some sort of martial arts skill is probably a good idea. It's, and, and I would really recommend to the listeners, don't go to one of these uh, martial arts schools where it's like kind of designer for the middle class people and nobody gets hurt. Uh, you're going to have to go somewhere where you can do some sparring. And, you know, if you have understanding instructors, they're going to take it slow and they're going to realize if your age and if you have injuries and that sort of thing. And you can talk about all that ahead of time and go at your own pace. But you actually need to get in there and kind of mix it up with other people in order to learn these skills correctly. Absolutely. And on on the medical side of things? Uh, Definitely learn how to treat gunshot wounds. Definitely learn how to stop bleeding, clear airways, do basic CPR, all that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, that doesn't take a ton of time. You don't have to get your EMT license to learn the basics of, of getting somebody stable. Um, the real issue comes in during a, in a, a real emergency is whether you can get them to true emergency medical services. Uh, most of the classes I teach and, and that I'm skilled in, I can stabilize somebody for three minutes to a few hours to maybe a day tops. But once we start getting to where we're having to add fluids, if we need chest tubes and things like that, that's beyond our scope and we need to get them to an emergency room. And that may not be, be available. Uh, that's one of those things where it's really great if you can get your little group together and you have a doctor or a nurse in there who can, you know, get some supplies set aside and be able to do a little more advanced techniques. Uh, but for most of us, that's not going to be possible. However, all of us can stop bleeding. You know, Correct. A, three, a three-year-old can stop bleeding. And, and we can learn to do that. I'm a big fan of the Israeli battle dressing. That's one of the uh, things that we, we teach everybody to use. But there's a number of good, good bandages out there that are, are a good trauma dressing uh, I wouldn't rely on the 4 by 4 pads and the gauze, but in reality, yeah. you can stop bleeding with a sock and a shoelace if you need to. If you had to, absolutely. Yeah. It's probably good to know how to do that if it's, you have no other choice. It's obviously not the most sterile thing, but life is that. You know, the wound's not sterile to begin with. You know, you know I, I, well, something I'd like to see kind of done in the civilian world, the best medical training I ever had as far as responding in a crisis was I had what was called, called combat medic training in, in the military. And it wasn't really to be a medic. It was to be some, it, it's to be kind of like a medic light that could at least just stabilize a person long enough for the right. medic and the evac to get there. And they tried to have about four per platoon people go through this course. And the test, you know, they went, they taught you all these different things, how to use a poncho to stop a sucking chest wound and how to do some triage and stuff like that. But, when you t- when you test it out, they had these guys laying there covered in like fake blood, t- mm-hmm. torn up, awful. And you would get there and you check for certain vital signs. And obviously, you can't simulate. The guy can't stop his heartbeat for you. So there were two instructors at each station. One instructor would tell you what you were observing when it was beyond the ability to recreate it and tell you what to do and and then basically just leave you on your own to do it. The other guy was screaming at you the entire time you were doing it. You're doing it wrong. You're going to kill them. They're coming to get you. And I'll tell you what, 
you're, you know it's fake. You know no one's coming to get you. You know the guy's not going to die. He's trying to keep from laughing, honestly, while it's going on. But you're, you're testing go, no go, and you fail one station, you're out of the course. So it's, it's important to you. But it, it was the, they always said the military is they, they put you in as much stress as they possibly can so that you're able to handle the stress. And I found it infinitely valuable to realize that no matter what's going on, you kind of have to tune it out and you have to just do your best. And there's times where maybe you didn't even do the exact perfect thing, but you would pass the uh, the course if you did something appropriate and realized when it was time to move on and go to somebody else. Because it was a line of like 13 guys yelling, screaming, laying there, rolling around, uh, right. simulating injury. And I, I actually would like to see something maybe not as graphic, but similar to that in the civilian world. Oh sure. Uh, there's, there's. I've, I've seen some courses like that. We, we do an advanced uh, tactical medical course uh, where we do a lot of. Um, sometimes we do it in the winter time with. Uh, we use it either use sim- simulations or airsoft, and we do all the blood simulation. I actually learned this from a special effects guy uh, for the people in the audience. If you want to make some good blood, red, red food coloring and Cairo syrup. That makes a nice, sticky, really <laughs> bad blood that, you know, just gets uh. all over everything and makes a mess of stuff. Um, but we can do that, and then we also do a live-fire version of that where, you know, you're trying to bandage people and that sort of thing, taking out targets at the same time. But our level uh, two and three pistol courses, we get into that. You know, we start, you know, shaking people on their shoulders and, you know, yelling things in their ears and stuff, uh, you know, anything to distract them, blowing whistles, car horns, all kinds of stuff to make them blow shots and everything else. Because if, if you don't have somebody trying to get into your head a little bit, you're really not training right. You need to, to get past that stress matrix and, and, and learn how to deal with the problem no matter how high, high your heart rate is. You know, it's always amazed me that I've talked to people that say, well, yeah, I train with my pistol all the time. And what they mean by this, they go to the range, they, they, you know, they set the target up at 25 yards or whatever, and then they stand there and they slow fire. And I'm not saying there's not a place for learning quality marksmanship and working on that marksmanship, but no bad guy's going to stand there like a perfect silhouette at 20 yards from you and go, okay, dude, shoot me, without shooting back, without running, without ducking, without anything else going on. And I know that on some levels it's the only thing people find themselves able to do because a lot of ranges you can't even double tap, let alone move. Right. Um, so you have to find a range like yours with training like yours where you can do those things. But I just think if people are deluding themselves when they think that means they're proficient. We're we're really lucky. We have a, a range in Rochester, Indiana, which I don't get paid for saying, but I'll give a plug out for it. It's called the Sandberg Gun Ranch, and we do a lot of our training out there. And the owners of that place are very sympathetic to what we do, and they allow us to do anything we want, basically. As long as we don't send bullets over the berm, uh, they're, they're really good with us. Uh, we can shoot out there till 2 in the morning if we want. We can shoot up cars, uh, do our night shoots, uh, moving with guns, running with guns, uh, all our holster drills, you know, use our steel targets, everything that we do. And it's become, uh, you know, even for your listeners, a lot of the people that I've, I've talked to uh, on phone and email over that, would like to come to us because we actually have a facility we can do that thing, that type of stuff at. So, um, you know, I know we're getting short on time, so a cheap plug here for myself. No, uh, no, of course. course. Uh, we actually have a uh, an introduction to defensive pistol course. It's a one-day course. Uh, and that's going to be on September 10th. We're going to do that in Rochester, Indiana. And then on September 24th and 25th, we've got our Level 1 pistol, which is a two-day, 20-hour course with a night shoot and all that type of thing. So if anybody's interested, get all of us. We still have some space. Absolutely, and you got—you just sent me recently, and I think I read it on the air. You had a, a student that went to one of your courses and got some of the medical training that went with it on the Israeli battle dressing, and then ended up using that in a way that had nothing to do with a gun, but it was certainly very fortunate. Oh, yeah. uh, she was actually uh, teaching vacation Bible school, and uh, we had a, a, a small child. I think he was seven years old or so, climb into a dumpster, and he cut his forehead on a piece of jagged steel inside this dumpster, and the church didn't have a first aid kit. And so she ran to her car and got the IBD out and uh, wrapped him up and got him stabilized. And, I mean, when head, head wounds, it doesn't take too long to bleed out from one of those if it's a deep gash. And he ended up going and getting some stitches or staples, something like that. But uh, it was pretty nasty, and uh, he lost a lot of blood by the time she got back with that bandage. But, uh, you know, whether or not she saved his life, we don't know. I mean, direct pressure was probably going to be good enough. But she had, to, she had the tools and the knowledge, and everybody else was standing there, you know, sucking their thumbs, not knowing what to do. 
I think there's a real risk with a head injury, especially with a kid of shock as well. And by having a, a way to control the situation and, you know, kids bleeding, the more blood they see, the more freaked out they become, the higher their blood pressure bleeds, the more they're going to bleed and the more they're going to panic. And yeah, it's a vicious cycle. It, so being able to know what to do, have what you need to get it done and do it quickly. And that was another thing we were always trained in, in the military. When you're assessing a victim and you're, you tell them you're going to be okay. Even if you think he's just like oh, this, talk, talk to him the whole time yeah, and joke you know. about it, and yeah, it doesn't matter if their arms hanging off, you know. Yeah, you're, you're gonna be just you're fine. Gonna be fine. You'll be up and walking tomorrow. Everything's great. Yeah, you yeah. got to do that. There's a there's a number of how-to videos on YouTube. If any of your listeners want to go look about the Israeli battle dressing, um, you know, we don't. I don't make any money from them or anything. I think it's a wonderful product. It's one of the few things I've seen in the past 10 years that I was just blown away with the design, and they've actually improved it just in this past month. The the roll, uh, it has like a gauze roll, or a, actually like an ace bandage roll attached to it, and sometimes when you got in a hurry, that would just unroll and fall out of your hand, and they've actually even fixed that problem now, so to me, the thing's like perfect, but... uh they're usually on the net. You can find them for six or seven bucks a piece. And once you see how the thing works and what it will do, I defy anybody to go to Walgreens and buy an ace bandage and enough four by four gauze to do what that does for six or seven bucks. No, I completely I mean, we, agree. We should all have them in our range bags and our cars and our office desk drawers. Uh, I carry one on my person everywhere I go. Really? Really? Absolutely. I don't go anywhere without a tourniquet and an IBD. Huh? And you can take those things on a plane. I would th- yeah, I would think that would be okay. Um, Fine. How do you uh, how do you carry that on your person? They're not big, but they're not. Uh, well, you know, guys. Uh, a lot of our female uh, colleagues, you know, are, are much more concerned about fashion than the rest of us are. And guys can wear tents. Um, you know, sometimes I've got the fishing vest on, and sometimes I've got uh, you know some sort of five eleven pants or something where I've got extra okay. pockets, and I'll just stuff one in there. But, I, you know, my dress is a little different from day to day, but I find a place for it. I, I don't go anywhere without a way to stop bleeding. I, I think that's the most important thing. Yeah, because I, I always have stuff like that. I don't necessarily have it in my pockets, though. I usually have, like, a small bag that's with me everywhere I go, but it's not necessarily on me. But that's interesting, and it's probably great advice. Uh, you did mention you have some courses coming up. And you want to tell folks a little bit about, like, how advanced some of the stuff you guys do is. It's not just, uh, you know, you could have a basic pistol course, but you guys well, have our, pretty advanced training as well. Our basic, like the eight-hour course, uh, we're going to, we don't do a lot of lecture in that. We're going to sit there and, and tell you basic range safety rules and what we expect of everybody through the day, but we're going to get you out on the range. We're going to get you suited up, and we're going to work through draw stroke, first of all, and then we're going to work through loading and unloading your gun, all the gun handling, uh, reloading, stoppage reduction. We're going to start working on movement on the draw, and we're going to start working with moving targets. And we'll do all that in eight hours. Uh, the, the level one course, we're going to do all that. We're also going to add a night shoot on the first day. Uh, it's a long day. It's 10, 12 hours, but, you know, we take dinner breaks and that sort of thing in there. A uh, lot of shooting, a lot of moving targets. Uh, on day two, we go into dealing with hostage situations uh, and a little more precision shooting, uh, a lot more with the moving targets. Uh, we use what's called a rotator target. They're made by Better Built Systems in Addison, Illinois, and, again, I get nothing for saying that. It's just a product that I love. Um, I, I pay retail for them, but uh, they... Uh, they're a really wonderful target, and they're the, one of the target systems I've found that's always better than the shooter. I've never been able to beat them. Nobody can beat them. No matter how much you shoot at them, eventually you're going to run out of ammo, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to win. So we can do a lot of different drills with those, and we, we put a lot of rounds down range, and we get people, uh, you know, somebody finishes our level one pistol course. I mean, I hate to say it, but you're probably better trained than 98% of the police officers out there. No, I'd agree with that. I've, I've shot with enough police officers to, to know that their training isn't necessarily uh, the highest level available. A lot of the guys on their tag teams for smaller places that don't have SWAT or the SWAT teams train pretty well, but most of your day-to-day officers, um, frankly, just about every one of them I've ever shot, I could, shot with, I can outshoot. And I don't consider myself an expert with a handgun at all, but uh, I, I think that there's a big lack of training uh, at that level for a lot of our officers. I think it's just a money thing. I think the departments don't have a funding. Money and training. Yeah, we talked about that last time. One thing I would like to do for your listeners, though, and I'm just I'm going to say this off the top of my head. We'll see if it'll work. Okay. I don't have anything written down or anything. Uh, the first ones of your your listeners who either call me or email me, I'm going to give away two free spots for the September 24th, 
fifth course. Um, it just covers your tuition. You have to get there. You have to pay for your own ammo and your own hotel and that sort of thing. But the first two survival podcast listeners that get a hold of me and guarantee me what what I will probably end up doing is I will have them PayPal me, say, 50 bucks or something like that to hold their spots, and I'll return it to them when they get there at the, at the class just so I, I've got some guarantee that they're going to show up. Well, that's that's more than fair because you have to hold the seat, and then if you don't book the seat for somebody else, that's a that's awesome. Right. So, folks, the the first two people to call Frank after hearing today's show, um, it, it will show up on what day? Uh, September twenty fourth and twenty fifth. It's in Rochester, Indiana, which is kind of central Indiana in the north half of the state. Uh, it's like middle of the state, up up on the north border, uh, near the Michigan side. Awesome, awesome. Well, I, I did and, not expect uh, that, and thank you for doing and it. And the, the hotel stuff there is relatively cheap. I think it's 70 bucks a night at the Best Western or whatever. We've got a deal with them. The hotels are about 10 minutes from the range. There's a Walmart there and restaurants and all that type of thing. Um, and, yeah, you know, we'd love to have a couple of your listeners out there. And, you know, no no strings attached. All you got to do is show up with your guns and be ready to go. And, and even if you don't have pistols, we've got rental guns, and we can arrange to get ammo there for you and that sort of thing, too. And for some people, it just may be easier than traveling with a weapon as well. I, I think sure, you could sure. train with your own weapon, but um, like you always say, a true master has no favorite weapon anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Frank, hey, man, I didn't expect you to do that. I really appreciate you throwing that out there for the audience. And, uh, folks, I can't recommend highly enough that you train somewhere. I mean, if you can't get to Frank, if you live in... You know, if you live in Puerto Rico, that might be quite a long way to go to get some firearms training or something. But I, I actually have a, a very good instructor friend who lives in the Virgin Islands. So if oh, cool. Take a uh, vacation down there. He's got a range. He can train you there. But if you guys can train with Frank, though, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. Frank, in fact, I need to get up there and shoot with you sometime. It's, uh, it's a matter of time of dealing with this uh, crazy schedule that I'm Anytime, running. Jack. We'd love to have you. And if nothing else, I can come down by you guys. If uh, you know, the listeners want to uh, you know, get on the forum and start talking about setting a date sometime to do a class down there, I'd be actually willing to uh, make some concessions just to get a survival podcast group together and do a class down there. Um, I'd probably do it at cost or something or just cover my gas money in my hotel to make that happen for you just to have, you know, a, a gathering of some sort of your listeners and, and get get something going. Well, that's a heck of an offer, man, and maybe we'll look at what we can put together and when schedules line up and uh, and make that work, because I'd love to get a group of the uh, the audience together and train with them and train with you, so we'll see if we can make that work. Okay, I really appreciate you having me on today, uh, you know, and, and everybody out there, just uh, keep, keep chipping away at it, and you're, you're, you know, the more you do, the better off you are than everybody else who's not doing anything. Well, as always, Frank, wise, wise words of advice that you had for the audience today. You're welcome back on the show. Anytime uh, you want to chat about anything, we'll have you back on. Appreciate it, Jack. Thank you. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Frank Sharp, Jr., helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Nobody up there cares